Uh, so let's jump into the scriptures in Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. Uh, and we will start in verse 11. So let's read. And then we will pray and jump into it together this morning. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you have given us your word so that we might know your character, or that we can see how your people lived and we can see your faithfulness on display. And so, Lord, we want to come this morning in all humility, submitting ourselves to your word. And we ask that you would minister to our hearts. Lord, you have a specific word. You have a piece of encouragement. You have something that we need to hear. Not from man, but that your Holy Spirit would impress upon our hearts. Lord, you know the things that we're dealing with, the things that we're struggling with. You know the, the, um, the state of our heart, the things that we have not revealed to anyone. But yet, Lord, you can go in and minister. You can speak to the depths of our heart. And so, Lord, we invite you to do so. We ask that you would change us and transform us by your word this morning. And Lord, we also pray for the other churches in the Bay Area. We pray that you would strengthen them, pastors and leaders. We pray that they would be faithful to the truth of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that they would boldly proclaim your word. We pray that people would meet Jesus for the first time. Lord, we're so thankful that you have allowed us to be a, a small part of the body of Christ in the Bay Area but we want to be faithful. We want to do uh, what you have called us to do. And so, Lord, equip us this morning to serve you well and to bring you glory through our lives. We love you. Amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 11 we have the continuing journey of Paul the Apostle. He has been making his way to Rome, not on his own, but was arrested um, all the way back in uh, the chapter 23, 22, uh, well, even before that, 21. He was arrested back in 21 and has been uh, under multiple trials, experiencing injustice of every sort, 
Again and again, as he's appeared before courts, they have said, this man is innocent, but yet have not freed him. And in the midst of this, it was Jesus who has spoken to Paul and told him, as you have testified to me in Jerusalem, so you must also do in Rome. And so it was that Paul knew that the course of his life was set. That Jesus' promises are true, that he is faithful to them, and that he would indeed make his way to Rome. I don't think he realized that he would be making his way to Rome uh, under Roman guard. I don't think he realized at the moment that it would, uh, it would be something that would be out of his control. He has been spending the last few years of his life traveling around to the various cities proclaiming the gospel. And so no doubt it was in his mind that he thought, all right, I'm going to be done with this situation, and then I'm going to be out on the road again, and then Jesus said I need to go to Rome, so therefore I will make my way there. And it's easy for Paul to probably feel like in the midst of this, Jesus said I was going to go to Rome, but I, I didn't think it was going to have to be with Roman guard. And I didn't have to think it would have to be still in a place where I am accused of something that I did not do. Where he had experienced injustice, being said that he was innocent again and again, being declared innocent by the courts, but never released. But yet, Paul finds himself there. And I think it's easy to say that Paul would have been justified in his decision to complain. It would have been easy for Paul to write an angry tweet and to say, at Roman government, I can't believe this. I've been declared innocent so many times. This is terrible customer service. You need to look into your practices. It would have been easy for him to try to start a campaign. It would have been easy for him to get upset, to invest his time and energy into getting freedom. But it was instead Paul who rested knowing that he was in the hands of Christ, who would be faithful to his promise, not only to deliver Paul to Rome, but that Jesus ruling and reigning over Paul's life is ultimately in control. You see, the Romans, they thought they were in control of Paul. But Paul was not confused. He knew that the only way, the only way that they had control over him was because Christ had allowed it. Christ had decided to use this group of people for his glory. And as we look far out into the future, as we look at the letters that Paul writes again and again and again, he says, I've testified to the gospel and all the guards have heard it. You see, Paul used these circumstances, these sufferings that he was experiencing, not as a place to complain, but as a springboard for the gospel. He realized, if I'm going to be locked up here to somebody, they can't get away. So I'm going to be sharing the gospel. What are they going to do? Say, oh, we had enough of you. Get out of here. That's not going to work. 
And so it's like, hey, you're stuck here. I'm going to be proclaiming the gospel to you. And anyone who would come into his life, anyone who would come into his sphere of influence was a gospel opportunity. Because Paul knew one thing. Christ has risen and there is no life apart from Christ. He has the good news, and so he wants everyone to know the good news. He has made it his singular mission to treasure Christ and to make sure that other people see Christ clearly. And this is what Paul has gone into from the very beginning. And so he makes his way on this journey. He's put on this ship. He's sent out. They get into the shipwreck. They've been uh, at sea for 14 days. They get into the shipwreck. They finally make it to the island. He gets off the, uh, off the boat there. There's these people of the island. You're wondering, oh, great, these people are the natives of the island. They're going to come out and uh, hurt us. But they end up being very nice people. They take them in. It's raining and cold. They make a fire. Paul decides, I'm going to serve and help out. But instead, he gets bit by a viper. So another opportunity for him to complain, but then again, he doesn't. And no doubt uses this as a springboard for the gospel. And then he's taken in by some of the people of the island, and uh, there uh, he heals many of those who are sick. And then we come now to verse 11. After spending this time, after spending three months of seeing Paul's claims of God's faithfulness on display, of hearing Paul proclaim the gospel message, after seeing Paul heal, after seeing Luke take part in this and heal as this medical missionary, now they come to a point where they believe they are ready to move on. We come to verse 11. We read this. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. So Dr. Luke, who is writing the book of Acts, he puts out for us some details, as any good doctor would, observant. Uh, He tells us that it has now been three months. Paul had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel message among the people of Malta for three months. They got to see the faithfulness of God. The soldiers who were on the ship, uh, believe it's the 267 people uh, who were upon the ship, they got to see God's promises be true. As Paul said, none of you will die as the result of this shipwreck. If you stay, if you believe me, if you are with me, you will be safe. Not a hair from your head will fall. And Paul's word was true, not because of Paul's faith, but because Jesus is faithful. When Jesus makes a promise, he keeps his promise. He's going to keep his promise whether you believe his promise or not. Your faith might be weak, but if the promise is from Christ, it's sure. You can count on it. And Paul has demonstrated that Jesus is faithful again and again. Jesus is Lord over sickness. 
Jesus is Lord over these uh, infirmities that the people of the island have. Jesus is Lord over creation as this viper reaches out and bites him, but yet Paul does not die as they expected him to die. They expected him to fall over. Paul has demonstrated through his life Christ's faithfulness and his lordship over all things. And now, after three months... Luke tells us that they set sail. Now, this would have been, we kind of have an idea of the timeline of when this would have been because Luke tells us in the previous passage about the time of year when when they make their first journey, and he said it was well past the feast, so we can make an estimate. And this means that they probably took off here in late January or early February. This is when they, they left uh, this port in Malta that they had landed on. They uh, take off late January, early February. Here's what we need to see. The winter is not over. The winter is not over. Earlier, we've seen that this is not the time to sail. This is not the time. He's already said there's a, there's a, a window, and basically the next time that you're supposed to sail is March. That's when the winds stop getting insane. Ships don't sink usually in that time because of the way that the weather patterns are. March is when you're looking for. But they are taking off in late January, early February. So the question is, why leave early? Why leave early? Why put yourself out there? Well, we're told that they see another grain ship, the ship of Alexandria. As we noted last week, these ships would make extra money for sailing during dangerous conditions, and they would make extra money for delivering food uh, in these times because there would often be a shortage. And so there was incentive for them to put their lives at risk and, the, and to put the crew at risk. They would make a lot more money. Uh, beyond that, the Roman government guaranteed your ship. So if your ship sank, they would pay for it. They would get you a new one. So where there was great financial incentive, there was an opportunity for money to be made here. And they see this opportunity, and they are going to take off. Now, let's draw some lines here. This is not the Roman soldiers. These are simply another group of sailors. There's the ship. It's going to take off anyways. This is a group of men who do not regard their lives as a value above money. They are chasing money as an idol. They are chasing money. They want money. They want to go out there and to risk their lives, the lives of their crew members. And no doubt whoever's decision it was, they're the one who's driving it, and probably if you were part of the crew, it was like, you either lose your job or you go along. And I think that can often be the case for many of us because we're in positions, we're in jobs where someone wants to chase the money and it's like, well, 
You either got to come along, you either got to give in and fight at the same level that they want to fight, or they're going to be like, oh, you're not helping me chase after the money. So you're off the team. There's great risk. But see, for these sailors, for those who chase money, who want to pursue gathering financial resources, money is only really a surface idol. Money is only something that reveals a greater problem. Because why do we want money? What are we after when we're looking to acquire vast amounts of money, when we are sacrificing our life, our time, our service, our relationships? What are we, what are we trading off for? Well, we say we want money for a couple reasons. One, because money offers us security. We've got to have a savings because, you know, what happens if things go upside down? Got to save for retirement because one day I'm going to like want to retire. Oh, there's some things that I, that I really want. Oh, I've, you're chasing money to a certain degree. And then when is, it, when is it enough? When is it enough? You see, the Bible says money's not wrong. Having money's not wrong. Earning money's not wrong. It's the reason why you want money. The motive for having money and the way that you pursue it is where it can often go wrong. And we recognize rightly that all finances, they all belong to Jesus. And we are simply stewards of what he has given to us. And he will give us as much as we need to live. And the scriptures tell us if you're faithful with a little, then he will give you an increase and you'll be faithful with more. But if you are not faithful with a little, why would you be given more? Because you will be an unfaithful steward. If you were entrusted with a little, then you will be faithful to be entrusted with much. The other pursuit of money, the other problem with pursuing money, the other motive and the reason that we pursue money is for financial validation. It says, look how successful I am. It tells others, here is who I am in life. You can see by the type of car that I drive or the amount, of, uh, the amount of money that I spend on my clothes or the places that I eat or the type of, of you know, vacations I'm able to go on. It demonstrates that you are at a certain level. But the reality is, as we've said, all the money belongs to God. And so for Christians, money isn't something that's bad. It's getting all things that he has given to us, all of our resources, and recognizing he's given them to us for his glory. And God is glorified in us when we steward over what he has given to us well. And so practically, that means like you pay your bills on time. You don't spend more than you make. You spend it on things that are wise and not foolish right? You don't overspend. You don't think, what can I do with this money first that belongs to me? You think this money that is given to me is a resource that I can use for God's glory. So perhaps God is glorified with this money by spending it, uh, you know, 
on a time of rest for my, me and my family. Maybe it's God glorified through your health by spending, hey, like we, we all, we need a, a, a newer car because our car breaks down and I don't want to put, you know, my family at risk or I need to get to work safely. Right? So that means you buy a, a car that works. That doesn't mean you go out and you buy a Lamborghini because you don't need a Lamborghini. A to B, that's it. The, the object is don't die, not don't die in style. Right? Style's not a part of it. He's given us all things to enjoy, and these men, they just see the dollar signs. And they're like, let's go. Money to be made. So they make their way out. They make their way out to sail to get this money. Now, the sailors who maybe didn't want to go, they are like, I got to go because they're afraid of, you know, losing their jobs or fear of man. Or maybe they want to be shown that they are as, as hungry. Oh, yeah, I'm a really hard worker, so I'm going to get out there and get after it also. But they make their way out, and this decision is made by the sailors. Now, it's the centurion uh, who sees that there's the ship. He knows typically the trade routes that these ships go, and so he likely commandeered this ship to transport the prisoners, just like he did the previous ship uh, of Alexandria. And so after coming through an intense 14-day-long storm where they couldn't see the, the sun, they couldn't see the stars for three days. There was a huge period where they, it, was just, it felt like it was night. They didn't eat anything for 14 days because they probably couldn't keep anything down. The ship breaks up. It's caught in a sandbar. It breaks up. Most of the people can't swim. Those who can swim go to shore They immediately are there in the cold, the rain. And after only three short months, the Roman prisoners are like, all right, it's time to go. They make the decision, okay, this ship's going, we are also going. And so they commandeer the ship. Now, why would they do this? Why would they do this? Because they're not after the bunny. Well, partially they want to get the job done. But here's their, here's their real reason. We get a glimpse in Luke's description. They see and they board the ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. These twin gods, uh, often called the heavenly twins, were... Uh, named Castor and Pollux. These were uh, said to be the sons of Zeus, not just the only sons of Zeus, but some of the sons of Zeus. And these gods are responsible for smooth sailing. Smooth sailing. Good fortune at sea. When sailors would be out... And they would see the constellation Gemini, which is supposed to be the heavenly twins. They would say, oh, good passage, safety, smooth sailing, safety at sea. 
And so this is what the Romans see. Now contrast this with what they have just seen. After being with Paul for this entire time, after hearing his testimony again and again and again, all the way back from chapter 21, fast forwarding all the way to like a shipwreck, being on the island with him for three months, after seeing the faithfulness of God on display, after seeing the promises of God come to pass, the Roman soldiers quickly return to their pagan gods. Here's why. They weren't changed by the truth of God's promises. Paul's word and Paul's promise from Christ was only useful to them because they saw in their lives the way that they interacted with their gods as a means to an end. They were using Paul's God as a means to an end. They wanted to come to him and say, we want safety, give us safety. They interact with him on that way and say, thanks, thanks for that. We used you and we're done. The way that they interacted with their gods was coming to their gods to offer sacrifices or to uh, perform certain rituals in order to secure safe passage. But that is not the way that our God works. He is not a means to an end. He is not a means to an end. I think we're often tempted to act in this way. I think it's easy for us to use God as a means to an end. We say, oh, I really want something, so I'm going to try to be good for a little bit, so that way God uh, you know, will kind of give me what I want. When we use God this way, it shows something in our heart. It reveals in our heart problems. It shows that we are exalting our desires. We are making ourselves first. Our desires, our plan, our goals are above Christ. When we act this way, when we use God as a means to an end, it shows that it's really a me-first attitude. We're being selfish, self-centered. We're not treasuring Christ because we're putting ourselves first. And the scriptures plainly say that when we do not treasure Christ, it's sin. That's just straight up what it is. It's not just that you've done something against him, but it's just that not that you've not made him your all in all. You've not made him the deepest desire, the treasure, the, the delight of your heart. When we do not treasure him, it's sin. When we use God as a means to an end, it shows in our hearts that we're often looking for signs of his blessing. When we put on the facade of, oh yeah, I'm doing the right thing, I'm trying to live the right way so that way I can get what I want. We look for open doors. Oh, there was open doors, great, yeah. So obviously God is blessing because like there's some open doors and I'm walking through these open doors. 
These open doors and signs do not necessarily equal God's blessing. Right? You recall the story of Jonah, who God told him very specifically what to do, and then he was like, nah, nope, other way. He went in the other direction. He went to the harbor and said, I'm going to find a ship. And guess what? He found a ship. There's an open door. Must have been God's will for him to go that other way. And guess what? They let him on the ship. And what? He went for a good distance, and it was fine. But those open doors don't equal God's blessing. They don't just equal that. Oftentimes, when we're pursuing God as a means to an end, we try to make those things line up so that way we can feel better about ourselves. Because we don't want to treasure Christ. We just want to be seen as treasuring him. Oh, I'm doing the right thing, and there's open doors. See? Look what he's doing. So other people can see in our lives, well, if he didn't want me to go there, then he shouldn't have made that available. We're passing the buck because we don't want to do the work of pursuing him. Guess what? Jonah got chased down. He didn't win. (laughs) God's going to get his way. It looked like it was open doors, but it took God pursuing Jonah and disciplining him for finally Jonah to come to a place where he would be obedient. We cannot use God as a means to an end. It's easy to do. I did this when we were going to plant this church. I was like trying to figure out like, are we going to Berkeley? Like, what is the deal? Uh, We were having like these prayer meetings at our house. And I came and met with some of my friends here in the city in San Francisco uh, who who were church planters. And one of the guys I was like talking to him, I was like, I just, I can't figure it out. And he was like helping me like think through it. And I was helping him. I'm like, I don't understand. I'm not understanding like, what is the deal? What, what is going on? Like, why can I not get clarity on this? And I was just telling him, I've like been like setting aside like this time so I can like get alone with the Lord and pray and just be like, Lord, what is it? What is it that you want to do here? Do you want to send us to Berkeley? Do you want to? And he just like straight up was like, well, there's your problem. Like you're trying to use God to get something like you, you can't use God in that way. He just straight up called me out. He's like, he's like that. That's like a sinful activity. Like you think you're being spiritual by setting aside time to pray for something specifically because you really want an answer and you're on this timeline. He's like, you go to God to get God, and like he'll tell you what he wants to tell you when he wants to tell you. I was like, oh, there's the problem. It's so easy to do because it lines up, oh, I'm doing the right thing. God is the treasure. We have to go after him. He is not a means to an end. The third thing that it does here, when we... Use God as a means to an end. It shows that we have an incorrect view of God. We have this unrealistic perspective that God will give into our plans. It shows that we don't really understand the depth of the gospel. If we do stuff for him, then he will give into our plans. Oh God, I've been living the right way, so then you're going to give me what I want. But let me tell you this. God's going to give you what he wants, And he doesn't deal with us according to that because that is works. You don't earn anything. He's dealt with us, the scriptures say, according to his son, not according to us. According to what Jesus has done. 
So you can kind of dress it up and try to be as good as you want, but he's just going to be like, thanks for that nothing. Like, that's not helpful. He has dealt with us according to his son. And so he's not interested in us submitting these plans and saying, oh, I've got this great plan that probably you haven't thought of, God. Maybe you want to approve it. In pursuing him, we want to be a part of what he is doing. We want to understand his heart and we want to join him in that. And when we seek first his kingdom and when we join him in what he's doing, then we'll be successful every single time because he's going to accomplish his plan. And so we want to get out of the way and just figure out what are you doing? I don't want to be a part of it. He is most interested in our sanctification, not our plans. He wants us to be shaped and transformed. He wants us to be like Christ, to learn to treasure him. Not to just come with these great plans that we think are amazing. I suppose we should move on from verse 11. (laughs) As they depart on the ship, the soldiers, they falsely believe they know they're going to be safe. It's a lie. They don't know that they're going to be safe. Only God knows if they're going to be safe. They think they're going to be safe because of the twin gods. Oh, we got these twin gods with us. But Paul's the only one who knows that they're going to be safe because God has already told him, I'm going to keep my promise. You are going to get to Rome. They think, oh, we're going to be safe because we've got these twin gods and, you know, we're going to see the, the constellation Gemini and it's going to, that's going to be the reason. Paul's like, no, that's not the reason. Verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puccioli. So Syracuse here is uh, the capital of Sicily. It's, uh, I had a map, but I forgot to load it. Sorry. Um, it's the, Sicily is kind of the left bottom of Italy. It's a little island that's there. Uh, there was a peninsula that stuck off with this city called Syracuse. It had two harbors on each way. Probably really good fishing, I would imagine. Uh, and they stayed there for three days. Uh, And then they moved to Regium, which is about 70 miles uh, up the coast. And they come to, this is on the very tip of the bottom of Italy. So there's a little strait that's between Sicily, uh, which interestingly enough, it's so close that the word Regium actually means to tear, to rip off. So it looks like it was kind of like ripped off of Italy. That's where the name comes from. Uh, There was a little Greek colony there. And so they kind of popped in there for a moment. And then after that, after one day of being there, the south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puccioli. So there's the south wind that they need to sail up the western coast of Italy. They get this, and they make the journey 200 miles north to Puccioli, and oftentimes what would happen is the ships would go, they would land there in Puccioli, get off, and then they would take the road to Rome from that, uh, that spot. You're kind of sheltered a little bit by uh, by the island of Sicily until you kind of come up into that open water, but it was kind of the first spot that you could land. It was a major hub. And so as they get there, verse 15, the brothers there, uh, <clears throat> and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, did I skip a verse? Nope. Yes. Yes, I did. Verse 14. There we found brothers, sorry. 
and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. So Paul, he gets to Puccioli. He finds fellow Christians who are here in the city. He's able to stay with them. It's kind of a little bit confusing who stayed with them. We know Paul definitely stayed with them. And so it was either Paul and his guard, who, you know, obviously they wouldn't let Paul just be on his own. Paul and his guard, who he was basically chained to. Or uh, the entire Christian community invited all the Roman soldiers, all the prisoners, everybody. Either way, it would not have been foreign to the example of Christ, of taking in those from the outside. The Christian community here in Puccioli is the result, it's the result of God's people obeying the Great Commission. This isn't a church that Paul planted. This isn't a church that he was a part of. This is the result of people hearing the words of Christ to make disciples and to go to the nations. And they did it. And as they make their way there, they hear Paul's presence. They come out. They receive not only Paul, but this company who were with him. They lodge with them for seven days. Paul is able to benefit from the obedience of those who have taken Jesus seriously. They've obeyed the Great Commission. And so they receive this hospitality from the church. Now, in this time, uh, uh, the, the centurion, he's kind of uh, setting up the passage to Rome and getting everything squared away in these seven days. Uh, and so they are about to make their way about 130 miles uh, north. It was a pretty intense uh, road. It wasn't super smooth. Uh, so as they made their way to there, it would have kind of been, let's come off of these couple days of sailing that are really long. Let's get rested here for a couple days. They're, you know, you know, have 200 and 276 prisoners. I'm probably getting that number wrong again. Marching up, uh, up 130 miles. And so they take a second to rest. Then we come to verse 15. And the brothers there, this is in Rome, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So here's what happens. This group of Roman soldiers and prisoners, they land, they get rested for seven days, Now they're making their journey north to Rome. The Christians who are in Rome hear what's happening. They're like, oh, oh, Paul, Paul, Paul's coming. And so they say, let's, let's, let's take, take off. So they start in Rome and they start walking south. Meanwhile, Paul is walking north. There's two groups here. First, we have the forum of Appius. This was a, a, like a marketplace kind of area uh, that was about 40 miles south of Rome on this, this road called the Appian Way, named after Claudius Appius, I think is uh, what it was. So this road that led all the way down to uh, Puccioli, they, there's a marketplace, and the, the Christians make their way, and they come to... Uh, come to one of these cities. And then the second city, Three Taverns, is this collection of shops uh, that is also, which Three Taverns is a pretty good name, right? It's 
pretty great, I think, uh, 31 miles south of the city. And so it seems like what happens is the first group uh, was making their way south, and they stopped there, and they saw these people walking, and they were like, hey, where are you guys going? And they're like, oh, you know, Paul, he's, he's like making his way here. So they picked up some more people, and they kept walking uh, all the way down uh, to the Forum of Appius. And this happened, we're told, when they heard about Paul. They heard that Paul was traveling to Rome. Now, here's, here's why they come. A couple reasons. First, Paul had written to Roman believers already three years previously. He told them, oh, you know, I've, I've been wanting to, to visit you. Uh, he's told them, I'm planning more missionary journeys. You know, it'd be great to be there and raise some support and uh, have some outreach. Uh, we get a glimpse of this in the beginning of the book of Romans and the end of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 11, he says this, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far has been, have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I, un, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I am to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. That's in Romans chapter 1. Later, he, he says a little bit more in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 23. But it was always Paul's desire, and he knew that he was kind of supposed to be there at some point to proclaim the gospel. He had this desire to do outreach there, to be encouraged, this mutual encouragement we see. And so Paul had always kind of dreamed about going to Rome, but I, I don't think he really thought this is going to be the manner in which he gets there. But nevertheless, he is on his way. And then verse 5, on seeing them, he, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Paul thanked God and took courage. Paul had never visited. He said, I've never been there. Like, I've, I've been prevented thus far. And so he's seeing people that he doesn't know for the first time. But there is a bond that they share in Christ. Fellowship that they have in Christ. There is a unity of the Spirit because they both treasure Christ so deeply. They've communicated through letters but he was encouraged to see them coming. He wasn't able to send them a message and say, hey, I'm coming to town. They got wind that he was coming, and they decided to come. So he sees this group coming towards them, and they are there to help him, to encourage him, to prepare him for his time in Rome. Now, think about this. Paul is spending all this time with all these soldiers the, all the prisoners, they probably heard his story like a million times. They probably said, like, I, you know, he's already said, like, I will go to Rome. He's probably told them I've never been to Rome. And then they're on the road to Rome, and he has this huge group of people coming out to greet him. And I'm sure the soldiers and the prisoners are like, who is this guy? Who is, what is going on here? Who is this guy? that has this huge army of people coming out to meet him. No doubt they 
probably confused the heck out of these soldiers and prisoners. But it seems like they felt like they knew him. That they understood that they wanted to support him and they understood that he was under the direction of Christ. This was a wonderful witness to the fellowship and unity that they have in Christ. Another testimony of God's faithfulness. Another demonstration of the family of God. All that Paul has been explaining to these people. Again and again and again. And so they come to greet Paul. And they do it in this way, which is completely foreign to us, but would this would have resonated in a great way with the original readers and with the people who saw this. The only times that this would happen would be when a, a, an emperor would come to town. The people of the city would come out to meet him, and then they would bring him in. This happened at the triumphal entry. When Jesus, riding in on a donkey, the people went out to meet him, the coming king. They laid down their coats, the palm branches, the symbol of freedom for the Jewish people. They sang the messianic psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They spoke forth the words Hosanna, which means save now. And they walked with him back into Jerusalem, receiving their king. And Paul now goes to Rome in the similar manner, no doubt thinking and taking courage that Christ has gone before him. Christ has been greeted in this manner, and like Christ, Paul would go under Christ's authority, and if he had to suffer and die for the sake of many, he would indeed do so. Paul sees them coming out and honoring them in this manner. They walk over 50 miles to do this. It would have been a testimony of unity and fellowship But beyond that, we're told that Paul took courage, right? That means he was not more brave, but he was encouraged. He was encouraged. This is what they were there for. They were there to encourage Paul. And this is what we're to do for one another, to encourage one another, to build each other up. Now, let me tell you this. Encouraging one another is not a suggestion. It's a biblical command. We're told again and again, encourage one another. I could give you a huge list of scriptures that say this. I don't have the time for that now. But here's what we need to understand. What is encouragement? I'll tell you this. It's not just compliments. It's not like false compliments or even like true compliments. Biblical encouragement is sharing the hope that will lift each other's hearts when it seems like we are losing losing sight of Christ. When someone is feeling, oh, I'm, I'm feeling weighed down. I'm feeling swayed. I'm feeling tired. When we encourage one another, as the scriptures command us to do, 
what we are doing there is we are raising up Christ and saying, look now at your Savior. Look at who he is and how deeply he has loved you. Set your eyes upon Jesus. We are to point out in each other's lives the places where God has worked. We can say, look at God's faithfulness in your life. Look at what he has done. Look at the promises that he has kept. That is a time where we encourage one another through those words. We point each other to God's promises. We remind each other that God is in control. But above all, we help each other see Jesus more clearly. Most of the time when we need encouragement, the question that we can be asking as someone's telling us, oh, they're feeling down or they're feeling discouraged, the question that, that we need to, to come to them with, the question that we need to think through ourselves is not what, what words can I fluff them up with, but rather, how, why are they not seeing Jesus clearly? Where is Jesus not being displayed properly and how can I help that? We don't need to say like, oh, you'll be okay. We don't need to say like, oh, things will get better. We need to help people see Jesus more clearly. How is this person not seeing Jesus clearly? I'll give you one more way that we can do this. And this is probably the most practical way. Then then we're we're done. Romans 15.4, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope Paul's assumption is this the scriptures encourage us they tell us God's promises they tell us God's character they tell us his nature they tell us of his love for us they tell us the story of our redemption they tell us that he will come again They tell us to hope in Christ. The scriptures encourage us. And then we encourage one another with the scriptures. And so when you say, how are they not seeing Christ clearly? How can I help them see Christ clearly? Go to the scriptures and say, look what it says about Jesus. Here's who he is. And let's pray and believe the promises. We are here to encourage one another to worship Christ and to put him on display so that others might see him clearly and respond and worship as well. Let's pray and we will respond. Lord, we are thankful for your faithfulness to us. We pray now that you would work in our hearts, that you would call us to respond. We pray that you would transform us and shape us. Lord, we don't want to use you as a means to an end. You are our greatest treasure, our true delight. We are after you and nothing else. And so, Lord, when we feel those rival passions creeping up in our heart, the things that are tempting us to invest in above you, help us to recognize those things and place them under your lordship. 
We want you to rule and reign. We want to see you clearly. Help us to be saturated with your word so that way when others are discouraged, we can offer the hope of Christ, that we can offer encouragement from the scriptures. And we're thankful for all that you have accomplished in us. We want you to be lifted up. Be glorified in your church, Jesus. We love you. Amen.